Thank you for listening to Faith Worship Center's weekly sermon. If you'd like more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithworship.org. So since, uh, since Wednesday night, we haven't slept much. He's up about every hour and a half, and we have to, he needs assistance, so, which is fine. We're, we're good for that. But if I sound a little tired today, I really am. I don't know. Last night was a five. Last night was a five call night. So, uh, um, I, I last week I I did that message on unity, which I, I made it through part way, and I said there would be a part two, and there is going to be a part two today. I hope that I myself can present this in a fashion that I don't fall asleep on all of you. But I'm, I'm sure we'll be fine. Thank you. Tell your husband the party's over out in the hallway. Just let him, let him know. Let's all look that way when they come through. So it make them feel really good, you know what I mean? They went, they went away? They're still... Joyce, go get them. Go, go tell them to come on in here. <laughs> Psalms 133 says, Blessed, the blessed unity of the people of God. It's a continuing of last week, so I'm going to read it. It's a psalm of a sense, which means that as David was going in, up into the tabernacle, he was worshiping the Lord and praising God. And so a song of a sense is ascending up to the hill of the Lord. And he says, below, b- behold, below. <laughs> this is going to be a great message today. Okay, it's going to be good. We're going to get through this. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down the beard, the beard of Aaron running down the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. The effort to dwell... Oh, that was my thing. Sorry, i got to continue this on. Uh, uh, ascending up to the mountain of, of the Lord. Is there the Lord commanded his blessing, life forevermore. So we uh, talked a little bit about unity last week and diversity and the need to be able to understand that we don't all think the same, just like we don't all look the same. We don't all act the same. We are uniquely made different by our Creator. And I just feel like there's... As I said last week, I feel like this coming uh, year, there is going to be more of a focus on unity in the body of Christ than what we've seen in many, many years. And not a shallow unity, and not a unity where um, um, the major uh, points of Christianity have to be discarded, but a unity where the major points of Christianity are embraced, and that there is a loving um, Union among the body of Christ that represents the heart of a good father, the nature of a loving father, that represents a family. I think that this year there's going to be more representation of family in the body of Christ than what we've seen in many, many years. 
And I'm looking forward to the embracing of diversity. But I'm also looking forward to the power that's going to come in the unity. Because if the psalmist said how blessed it is when believers dwell together in unity, you can better believe there's a good blessing attached to that. And so I feel like there's this... um, There's been this issue within Christianity for centuries now of using the Bible to develop um, arguments against others. Anybody ever witness that yourself? Wow, no hands. So I'm the only one that's really seen that. I mean, I did hear some yeses, but it's like if you've ever been involved in one of these discussions, it can be quite intense, especially if if you're on the receiving end of someone who's disagreeing with you and have to pull out a whole boatload of scriptures to prove their argument. And I, I feel like what's really um, become evident in our cultures uh, in, modern day, in a modern day sense, what's become evident to me is that we've become more interested in the words that get said and being correct than we have in actually listening to the heart of another individual. And this is vast. This covers a whole multitude of areas. And I, I'm, I don't think, like I said last week, I don't know that there'll ever be a point where everybody's going to agree upon everything 100%. I just don't know if there'll ever be that. But that's not the unity I'm talking about. The unity I'm talking about is being able to disagree agreeably and remaining, remaining connected to the vine, who is Jesus, and being able to draw nourishment from him, understanding that we are all Many parts, but of one whole. And last week I said something that I wanted to just bring a little bit more clarity to that because I feel the importance of this is, is really key. Each of us are going to feel like we are right in what we believe. Anybody feel like that? You just, I mean, who wants to be wrong in what they believe? I don't think anybody does. So each of us is going to feel like we are right and we're in the right. And if there's, um, if there's a, a conflict of something like that, then you're going to have two people that are going to be feeling like they're right about something, and they're going to make sure that the other person comes into their right. So you can see the tension. There's this tension where you've got two parties who are saying, two parties, did I just say that? I did, but you have two people that or two persons, or two groups, or whatever you might want to call it. You have two opposing issues, both feeling that they're extremely right. And then you're going to have different personalities mixed in that. You're going to have um, some people that just don't like to have confrontation, and so they're just going to shut up and let you insist that your way is right. And inside, they're going to be going, I know they're wrong, but I don't want to fight, so I'll just say they're right. And if you don't learn how to communicate properly, you'll let people walk all over you like that. And if you don't learn how to communicate through that kind of an issue, then people are, that feel that they're right are going to say, even they agree, and they might actually go somewhere else and say, well, I was talking to so-and-so, and they believe me. They agree with me. And that might not necessarily be the case. It's just they couldn't find it in themselves to really communicate through the process. So we've been working over, I'd say over the last few years, we've been working on developing communication skills with you guys and brave commun- introducing courses on brave communication, how to communicate uh, through, uh, you know, through di- diversity and communicate in those areas where, you know, 
Uh, parents, right? Parents with teenagers. Have you ever had an issue like this? Your teenagers know they're right and know you're wrong. And you as a parent know you're right and know they're wrong. And if you don't learn how to bravely communicate, you're just going to have yelling matches at each other. and There's going to be a lot of hurt feelings. And if that continues to go on, then you're going to be cutting off you're going to be cutting off some, you know, you're going to make some woundings that might be cutting off the relationship to develop even further. So when the tide turns, either parent or child come to their senses. When the, when the tide turns, what will you have left of a relationship? And so brave communication is always making sure that the relationship stays intact. And I feel like this is going to be happening in the body of Christ that we are going to see brave communication arising with the goal and with the purpose to keep the relationship intact and to keep honor of one another and value for one another, even in our differences. And so I just want to tell you, oh, this is awesome, Bob. Good job. Bob gave, gave us a little water holder up here. That's awesome. I just want to say that um, I have been, you know, on the receiving end of people feeling that I'm wrong and they're right a whole lot. And as I've said before, I've recently, within the last couple months, discovered some things about myself which have invited that kind of thing. And um, I've invited a lot of my own hurt to myself just based on how I am and who I am, that I, I feel like I'm right about a lot of things. And so I, I, I stick to that. And, and uh, in my history has been that I don't really listen enough to hear the heart of a person, especially when they're coming loaded for bear. And there's something in our hearts that have to change in this respect. Instead of trying to entrap people with the Bible, and instead of trying to use the Bible as ammunition to support our, uh, our statements and our beliefs, we need to understand that the Bible is a book about healing. It's, it's, it's for an individual's healing as well as a group's healing. It's not, it's not made to prove things right or to prove them wrong. I know I just said a loaded statement then that really contradicts probably some certain verses that are in the Bible. But I really firmly believe that when Jesus showed up on the planet, he began to correct some of that kind of thinking. Because a lot of that thinking existed in the Pharisees and in the scribes and in the Sadducees, who he said would not help a person. They would not even lift a finger to help someone out, but instead would heap upon them all the right and all the wrong of what shouldn't be done. And that's what they were doing to people. And I feel somehow a lot of, a lot of Christianity has taken that route. And I, I think it's time for some change. I think we need to understand that when Jesus showed up, he just came to love people. You know what I mean? He came to the untouchables, if you, if you really want to phrase it like that. He came to people who couldn't even be touched. They, were, they had leprosy. They were unclean in, under the law. They weren't allowed to go near people to even be touched. And Jesus shows up, and what's he do? He comes among them, and he touches them. Now, you've got to get this picture. He was not afraid of the untouchables. He reached into the untouchables. But he didn't just stop there with the untouchables. He actually reached into the touchables. 
he, in his life, proved that there was no separation between humanity and God. In his life, he shows, he shows up and he shows by example, by who he ministered to and how he ministered, the goodness of the Father, the love of the Father. He showed by example in his own life that the wall that had been erected to separate humanity from God was being torn down, torn down and leveled, or if you could call it a veil, as the New Testament describes it. The veil was being ripped in half. It was being torn out so that there would be no separating factor between us and between God. But instead, there would be a unity factor. And he showed up. And this is what he says. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. I love this passage. It's found in John 14. It's verses 6 to 7. And basically, what it just says is Jesus shows up on the scene, and he's not showing up, and he's not making this statement to create a new religion called Christianity. He's showing up, making this statement to say, I am in my Father, my Father is in me, I'm here, we're here, we are the way, the truth, and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one's going to come to God except through me. And now, that has been fulfilled. I love that. Because it opens wide to the world an invitation from a good and loving God to say, I'm including you in this plan. Because up until that time, they were excluded. There was a wall separated by Jews and the Gentiles. And that big wall was like the Gentiles could only cross over into God's goodness if they had to go through a bunch of hoops through the Jewish law, Mosaic law of converting uh, to be Jews. And Jesus shows up and he, he just breaks the wall. He tears the veil. He basically says, this right here, what you're looking at right now, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He establishes a foundation that we get to unite around. We as believers get to unite around that statement. That is something that does not change. Jesus has not become a different way. He is the way. You guys get this? I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm back as a Sunday school teacher telling kids the same story over and over again, but I'm just saying this for, for a point because there, there's, there's a danger with embracing so much of diversity that you can diversify the foundations away and have nothing left to stand on. Jesus said, whoever builds his house upon this rock, upon me, is like a man who builds his house, and the storms come, the waves beat against the house, but the house remains standing. Why? Because it was not built upon the looseness of man's schemes and ideas. It was built upon the foundation of Jesus the Christ. And that is our foundation. I'll tell you, it's like 
He's the way, the truth, and the life. And you would think that that statement alone would be enough to keep us all together and in harmony. But you look throughout history, and you will see where that's just not the case. Where Jesus, just believing in Jesus, has not been enough to keep people united together. I wish it was enough. I'm sure the Father's will and intent is that it would be enough. But what's a, what ends up happening is groups within the, that belief begin to develop and they begin to pick what they should embrace, what they want to embrace, what they agree with, and discard the things they don't agree with. And then you basically have a whole lot of, I'm not sure if I believe anything. And you can see people doing this with the scriptures. They, they will like pick and choose certain scriptures to uh, validate their opinion, disregard the others because they don't understand it. I mean, there's, there's controversies out today that are around, there's, uh, you know, no hell, okay? For instance, when the scripture is loaded with instances of hell. Now, I don't know what kind of hell that is. It's whatever the scriptures relay what kind of hell that is. I don't know. I'm not familiar with hell. I don't even want to become familiar with hell. I don't think, I don't think hell should be our number one topic. In Christianity, I think heaven is a far better thing to look at and far better choice to make for believers and for people in general. But if you if you throw out the idea of that, there's there is, you know, no hell. If you throw that idea, then you're basically denying the scriptures that says there are. And what right do you have to say there's a heaven? Because you get that from the scriptures, too. It's just, it's just doing okay. You guys are sitting so quiet. I'm like, maybe I'm twisting some of your heads a little bit. But what, I, what I'm trying to say and what I'm hoping comes across clearly is that we have created a mess for ourselves by denying some of the very basic foundations of which Christ said we are to stand. And so we've created a lot of diversity. And you can see this back in the very beginning of the church. Back in the very beginning of the church, it's like, Man, Christians were like doing the stuff that Jesus did, and it brought on persecution by the leaders in Judaism. And, and these Christians were still meeting in synagogues at that time. And so the, the synagogue people are um, you know, watching this, this group of what was called Christians, which means little Christ, because they were actually doing the works of Christ. They're watching these believers grow in their synagogues, and the believers are actually carrying something more important than the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the leaders of the community were. And they're healing the sick, and they're talking about love, and they're um, you know talking about Jesus Christ, who the Pharisees and Sadducees had crucified. And so they're like partying up in the synagogues, and the synagogues are basically looking at all this activity going, this is completely different. We don't want this. We, we want our old ways back. And so they actually pushed the believers out of, their, out of their circle based on the fact that they would not have what Jesus was laying out for them. And so we've got this, immediately we've got a divisive thing happening within the Jews and within the Christians. And there's this division coming, the disciples, the believers, and and the ones that uh, couldn't embrace who Jesus was. And so you've got this division coming up, and you've got this major, uh, major persecution that comes. Paul himself, Saul the Apostle, or Paul the Apostle, who used to be Saul, goes around, he's persecuting the believers, throwing them in jail. He's got permission from the leaders to do it. And there, this is a pretty bad thing. So Christians had to actually separate themselves from the synagogues, from what they knew, to be their, 
their foundation for all their life. They separate from the synagogues and they begin to meet in homes and gather together to break bread together and to love one another and to have fellowship with one another and to uh, enjoy each other. And they're having to do this based on the fact that it's a matter of survival. If they don't, they're going to get killed. How many of you know if someone comes looking for you that wants to kill you, you just don't want to do that? You don't want them to come put you out of your your life. It was survival. So the believers are gathered together and they're enjoying uh, the fellowship and they're uh, breaking bread together and the persecution starts to intensify and they end up splitting out into different places. And as they go out into different places away from Jerusalem, they, the gospel starts going with them and the gospel starts spreading. And then as the gospel starts spreading, Peter gets a vision and understands that now it's like now being opened up to the Gentiles. The gospel is now open to everybody. It's just like, here's the invitation. And of course, if you're the only one thinking, if you're the only one, ones on earth thinking that you've got, you're God's best and that he doesn't like other people except for you, if you're thinking that and then someone comes along and says, now he likes everybody, well, you know, you might feel a little pushed out of the ranks a little bit if your heart's not in the right place. And so what ends up happening is they, they form together, they unite together, and they begin um, you know, fellowshipping based upon the, the union of Christ and uh, break bread together and just enjoy the fellowship with one another. And then what ends up happening is they end up getting some rough spots in their group. Some of the, the Jewish Christians, the Jewish believers, were now beginning to say, the Gentiles... They are Gentiles, and if they want to be a part of us as believers, they need to get circumcised. Not good news for any male at all who is an adult. And, and so that, this rift pops up, and it, it's more than just an idea of an outward knife um, cutting off the foreskin of a man's private parts. It's the idea that now they've got to do something else that wasn't included in the finished work of what Jesus accomplished. But now it's like efforts that they have to make. They've got to make this effort now. They've got to be a part of the Jews. They have to conform to the old instead of just embrace the new based on a gift. So what ends up happening is they end up having a big argument. They get this whole thing going on where there's a council that arises and the council arises, and they, they meet together as a council, and this is what they do in the council. Acts chapter 15 records this. In the council, they gather together, and they're having this discussion. Okay, well, the Mosaic law says we need to be circumcised. Abrahamic uh, covenant is based on circumcision. The Gentiles need this in their life. We have it. We had to go through it. They have to have it. You say, what does, what does this have to do with us? I think it has a lot to do with us. I think in many ways, Christians have done the same thing. We believe this way, they need to believe this way. They don't believe this way, they can't be a part of us. I've felt it. I've been strong about many of my beliefs over the years, as I've already shared. I've had to eat humble pie on so many occasions, I can't count them. Not because of something that I was saying was entirely wrong, but because of how I was saying it and how I was coming across to people who had a different opinion. 
Are you guys okay with my honesty? I'm, I'm doing the best to apologize here without actually saying I'm sorry. But the reality is, is that when you believe something so strongly, and then something else springs up that isn't looking like your belief, there can be a tension that can come up. And if you have two strong people come together, there's more than just a tension. There's a confrontation, and there's, there's an argument that will ensue just about every time. Unless there's a humility to accept the fact that though we feel that we are completely right, we aren't completely right. Amen. Thank you for coming to this message. I really appreciate it. We aren't. You're not completely right in everything. I'm not completely right in everything. And we're not going to be completely right in everything. I mean, really, if you, if you ask me, it's an impossibility. Because God made us unique. In our mother's wombs, he developed us. We are unique people. Throw in the mix that we grew up in different... I grew up in Redding, California. How many grew up in Redding, California? No wonder I feel so ostracized so many times. <laughs> when you grow up in a place and there's things that affect that growth. There's people that, that feed into you. And you can go to different cultures. You can go to different environments. You can have ethnic groups. You can have uh, different countries. Uh, there can be all these upbringings that we have where people have fed into us an identity based on what they think we should be and what we think we should learn and what we think we should know. I recently told someone in, in discovering um, some of my personality traits and, and trying to uncork who I really am. Like, who am I, you know, really? outside of being Pastor Daryl or whoever, who really am I? And looking at this has been an interesting puzzle to me because I've, I've seen that there have been a lot of people that have tried to shape me on the way. And one of the things that, as a kid, that I've felt, and I, I, as I'm looking at who I am and going back into uh, my life to try to find this true Daryl, who is the, well, the true Daryl, please stand up, you know, and it's not like I'm bipolar or have disenfranchised personalities or I have multiple personalities. It's not like that, okay? I hope you understand what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we can have false impressions put, put upon us and we can actually believe those impressions and then we grow up with those impressions and then we begin to think that we're somebody that everybody else has wanted us to be and then we get kind of lost in that jungle, and it's not just middle-aged crisis, folks, okay? This happens all throughout our lives and our time. So when I was a kid, I, I'm just going to come right out and, and reveal my type. When, when I was a kid, I didn't feel I ever needed correction and instruction. I'm going to say it like anybody else feel like that as a kid? Huh? You got disciplined for something that you knew was wrong. You did it wrong but you didn't feel like you deserved the discipline. I see some of you smile. You're too afraid to identify with it, but it's a reality. And I remember getting disciplined and getting very angry at the person that was disciplining me. Anybody else remember that? And I also felt like, why do I need school? Now, this is I've just gone on this discovery. 
just recently. And I've linked this together to something that's deep inside of me. And I'm not saying what was deep inside of me was correct. I had an incorrect perspective of not wanting to be disciplined and instructed. But what do you do in school? You sit and you listen to instruction. And what did I do as a very young kid who felt like I didn't need instruction? I ignored the instruction. I mean, I flunked in second grade. That's pretty hard to do, <laughs> to get put back in second grade. And I, I got put back in second grade because I didn't believe that I needed instruction. I just needed a recess. But I didn't need the rest of school. You know, I was like the kid in the desk who's taking a test that he didn't study for because he didn't believe he needed the test because he didn't believe he needed the instruction that was... I mean, I felt like people were trying to push stuff down my throat that I didn't need. So this is what I'm doing next to my desk on the test. terrible. And part of the thing that I begin to realize as I begin to uncover some things about my true self is I begin to get crushed inside. I begin to think, oh my gosh, who is this person? Where did they go? I'm not blaming the school system. I'm not blaming my parents. I'm not laying blame to anything. I'm taking ownership for my own stuff. I did not feel like I needed instruction or correction. I felt like whenever I got disciplined, it was always wrong. It was in the wrong flavor. And I grew up with that idea until I joined the military. And my life began to change. So here we are as a group of believers coming from multiply diverse Uh, multiple diverse ethnic groups and uh, in some cases nations where you're completely on a different, taught on a complete different scale in different nations. And and here we are, we've been brought in different families. Some of them haven't had good families. Some of us had good families. Some of us had medium families. Some of us had normal families, which were dysfunctional. And, you know, we've been brought up in all these ways. And in all this bringing up, there have been things that have been laid upon us, told us that we were certain way or acted a certain way, we shouldn't act a certain way, we shouldn't do this, shouldn't do that, we should do this, we should do that. And all this stuff that has been done to form us into a false identity, and Jesus comes along and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me but the Father. Jesus comes along and says, he who abides in me remains in me and lives forever. And he is showing that he is the connection point between us and God, that he is more than just the connection point. He is God, and that when we connect to him, we connect with God. And when we connect with God, his spirit becomes alive in us and begins to point us in the directions that we should go. That's where we find unity. Not in this one says that, that one says this. Not in this book writes that, that book writes this. Not in this preacher preaches this, this preacher preaches that. We find unity in who Jesus is, what Jesus said, and how he represented the Father. And he represented a good, loving Father who instructs, who's patient with us, who understands us, who walks with us, who loves us, 
who even likes us. And you know, this is kind of like a, a, a good news session right here. He even likes the people that we believe we are that we really aren't. He likes, he likes us even though we've had false identities leveled on us. Because he sees deep into who we really are and how he created us to be. And that he draws upon and that he calls out. So we all gather together. We're all sitting here. We got people that are multiply gifted. We have some of you are gifted in ways I could never be gifted. You you just carry amazing gifts. You you're gifted in the arena of finance. So some of you out here, I look out here and see some of you that are so gifted in finances. I mean, money follows you and likes you. It's just absolutely amazing. You just you know how it works. You you know the scale. It's just wonderful. And um, others are working in places that I could never work in. Uh, to, to be quite honest with you, I don't think I could ever be a cashier at a store. I've seen what some of them go through with other customers, and it's like, I don't think I could ever do that. But some of you have the grace to be able to do that, and not just do it, but to minister to the person. One, I was in the line one time, and there's this cashier, and this customer is mad at this cashier. I mean, they're just unloading. I don't know. Maybe the dog ate their lunch. I don't know what was going on. But this customer was not having a good day. They started unloading on the cashier, and the cashier just got a smile on their face and said, we'd love to work with you on this and, and help you in any way we can. You want to take the product back? You can take the product back. It's okay. Very friendly. What, what is it the proverb says? A quiet response calms the anger. That's a gift. Some of you carry that gift. I was behind the cashier, I'd, I'd just want to say, get out of here. Go, there are other stores you can go to. Go get them. Probably. I don't know what I would do. I wouldn't last long, probably. That's for sure. But we're all gathered together, and we all carry spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. Wow, that changes. That's just not a gifting that you can, uh, you know, just have to be restricted to an outside job, but a spiritual gift which incorporates an outside, outside job and incorporates things of the Spirit. Things of the Spirit are like released from the body of Christ. They are released from us. And as they get released from us, the kingdom of God begins to grow and expand all around us because we're releasing spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says this, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however that you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I want to stop right there before I go any further because this, I wish that this was the litmus, litmus test for every single believer on the planet. I wish that this verse were the litmus test, litmus test for every believer. I wish that every believer could see this and hear what he's saying, because he's, he's saying, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. Simple. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That is a foundation that we can unite around with believers. To me, it's very clear. It's like no one can say Jesus is Lord 
except by the Holy Spirit. That means if you're sitting here and you can say Jesus is Lord, and another believer is sitting in another church somewhere else, and they can say Jesus is Lord, then the Holy Spirit is allowing them to say that. It's the Holy Spirit that has given them the ability to say that. So uh, that's dangerous to believe that kind of... I didn't write this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul the Apostle, who wrote most of the New Testament, is writing this. And he's basically giving this as a groundwork. You want to talk about unity among believers? These are the places you start. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is Lord. If some believer that you know can say Jesus is Lord, and you might be completely on the opposite spectrum of them theologically or, uh, you know, whatever, religiously, whatever. But if they can say Jesus is Lord, then the Holy Spirit is allowing them. The Holy Spirit is in them to say that. And to me, that's good news. I mean, we want to make salvation difficult, not God. We want to make all kinds of hoops and jumps for people to jump through, not God. Many of you probably don't know it, but my grandfather was a Pentecostal preacher, Church, uh, Church of God preacher. And my grandfather was in town. He was, he was in a small town. At that time, Reading was very small. It was a, uh, uh, what we called it, a goat, ro- goat roper's town, even when I was in Reading, a cowboy town, just basically. You, you guys are from New England. What do you know about cowboy towns? You don't know anything about cowboy towns, but... We, we, we grew up in this little, small little town, and is a small community at that time, and uh, my grandfather was in this town that was basically, he was a gold miner, and these were, you know, as he, when he pastored a church, it was in the 40s and 50s, and uh, at that time, Reading was way different than it was when I was, even as a kid, and I'll give you an example. He was out putting a sign up by his church. You know, they were going to have a special meeting, and he was out putting a sign up by, the, uh, by his church to announce a special meeting. I don't know what kind of sign it was, cardboard or whatever, you know. And, and he's right in the neighborhood, right? So he's putting the sign up, and one of the neighbors yells out of the house and said, I want to shoot you in the butt. <laughs> well, that's the kind of town it was at that time. I mean, it was a western town, you know. Anyone said that today, they'd have every cop in the neighborhood at his door, you know. My grandfather was a Pentecostal preacher, and my grandfather had a lot of ideas that probably were not ideas that uh, I would actually embrace today. But he he had a lot of strong opinions, a lot of strong ideas. Um, He had a lot of good things going on with him. He had a seven-member worship team which for the 40s and 50s was pretty incredible because most churches just had a pianist, a pianist or an organist. He had seven. And I don't know what kind of instrument. I don't know if they were good instrumentalists. Bad instrumentalists. I never heard one of my grandfather's church services, but from what I've read, some of them were pretty wild. From what my mom told me, a lot of them were pretty wild. This was when they called Pentecostals Holy Rollers. And they'd be on the floor rolling around. This is, when, uh, this is when the ladies wore their hair up in high beehive buns. 
And when the Holy Spirit would fall, their heads would start shaking and the bobby pins would go flying out of their hair. And this was in a time when things got really loud. And he's in a, uh, a neighbor, quiet, I just almost said quiet neighborhood. The neighbor that wanted to shoot him represents quiet, I guess. But he's in a neighborhood where all this commotion's going on late into the night, early into the one o'clock, uh, two o'clock mornings on some meetings, according to my mom. They per- basically went, went to church, fell asleep in church, and woke up at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning leaving. Powerful, uh, powerful uh, presence of God, power of God meetings, glory showing up in all sorts of ways. Um, anyway, uh, I'm just basically uh, wanting to say this because my grandfather and I, we could agree on a lot of things, I'm sure, but we would also disagree on a lot of things, I'm sure, as well. And the point isn't so much on the disagreement as it is the agreement. And one of the things that I could agree about with my grandfather is that my grandfather actually got arrested for having a church meeting where a young girl who was deaf and mute suddenly, instantly got healed in the service and started screaming praise to God at the top of her voice. Now, I could agree with my grandfather on something like that. He got arrested. And he got arrested for disturbing the peace. (laughs) And it was in the front page of the Reading paper. And someone uh, found the article, uh, probably 10, 15 years ago, they found the article that was in the paper. They went back into the archives. And they actually uh, sent me the article in a PDF format. And I have all but one section of that article And the trial, it was a seven-day trial, jury trial, for disturbing the peace. And it was all around because this girl got healed. And um, it went seven days as a trial. And the defense is throwing everything. The defense, defense, you know, or not the defense, who is it? Prosecutor has all these witnesses stacked up against my grandfather and against the church. They're all stacked up against him. And they're just saying all this stuff. He's loud. They're noisy. I haven't been getting sleep since they've been in the neighborhood and all this kind of stuff. You know, it's just like craziness, right? So my grandfather did not believe in lawyers. And he probably couldn't afford to hire one anyway. He was going to be his own lawyer. So it came on the seventh day that it was his turn to give his defense. And as he sat in the witness chair, the judge asked him, what exactly took place that night that that brought you here? And he said what the reason was, and he said what had happened. And then the judge looks over at the young girl who was also arrested along with her mom and my grandfather. He looks over at the young girl and said, can you please tell us? what you said in this meeting that causes us to be here. And at the top of her voice, at the same level she did in the service, she shouted out, praise God, hallelujah. <laughs> and he, he, took, he took the gavel, banged it on his desk, and said, case dismissed.
one body, many members, diversity of gifts, but the same spirit, differences of ministries. Do you know we're all in different ministries? Some, some, some people think that a ministry is just standing behind a pulpit and talking to people. That's not ministry. We're in different ministries. We're all involved in different ministries. We, when you wake up tomorrow and you go to work, you've gone into your mission field. You've gone into the ministry field. You get to take the Holy Spirit with you and release Him. You get to release His blessings everywhere you go. And it's like, well, I don't really feel like I'm not. You are gifted, believe me, you are gifted because the, gift, the giver of the gifts is living inside of you. And when you have the giver of the gift living inside of you, then you're gifted. If you can say Jesus is Lord, the giver of gifts is living inside of you, and you are gifted. Paul, later in this passage, Rome, or 1 Corinthians 12, it goes into describing the body as many members, like, you know, the hand is not the foot. He talks about how the eye is not the ear, and, he, and how the mouth is not whatever, the butt. And he goes into talking about the, the different diversity of our body. But our body has many members, but they compose one unit. And he, sim, he similarly ties our natural bodies, he similarly ties them into the body of Christ. And that the body of Christ has many different members. And in that body of Christ, with the multiple different members and the different giftings that come out. Each one is doing the part that the Holy Spirit has gifted them to do. And who are you and I to judge them? He goes on to write, he says, does the hand stop becoming a part of the body because the hand says, I'm no longer part of this body? How many of you wouldn't like that picture? You know, you're just like laying in bed, having a good night's sleep, and all of a sudden your hand decides to exit your body. I'm tired of this body. I'm separating myself right now and taking off. Rotten picture. You're going to bleed to death in your bed because your hand decided not to be a part of the body. But that's not how it works. The hand doesn't make that kind of decision. The foot doesn't make that kind of decision. I think it's almost humorous how there's a revolving door in so many churches where people leave because they disconnect we saw this happen back in Renewal. When Renewal first came in 1994, people were, we had holy rollers all over the place. We had laughers, holy laughers. I mean, there, it was just a, a scene that would just shock a conservative believer, for sure. And there were people that were leaving to escape it. Okay? Like they, they could only tolerate it so much. After a few weeks, it, it got to be, to them, it got to be emotional. It got to be in the flesh. They're in the flesh. It isn't really God. It's not really Holy Spirit. All kinds of things got said and created. And we had people leaving. And I thought what was so funny about that is that where they left, they went to the next church that they went to. And within months, the Holy Spirit broke out in that church. And then they were faced with an, another dilemma. You understand? I mean, you can, you can disassociate yourself from one group of people, but all you're doing is going from one body to the next. Why not just enjoy the body that you're in? Why not just enjoy the, the people that are around you? And why not just have a good time with it and just say, we're all different? It's okay. Yeah? For as the body is one, has many members, but all the members of that body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we've all been made to drink into one spirit. 
For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Uh, just look around right now, because I get to look at you guys all the time when I'm talking. I, I just, think, just look around. There's many members in here. We're all like, we're all different. Did you know, did you know it's okay? It's okay if somebody's different than you are. Did you know like it's, it's even okay if you recognize that somebody's different and that different that they have is so different than you that if you put the two differences together, there'd be a collision. And so you want to avoid the, the collision. It's okay. Does that just make sense? I, I think what I just did is gave you permission to avoid people that you think you might collide with. Better to avoid a collision than to have one head on. Wow, that's a strange thing for a pastor to say. Usually you want to hear, just get along with everybody. Well, yeah, you know, but it's like, we're different. It's okay. It's how we were made. Some of you were made with really intense, serious personalities. Some of you were made with, woo, who cares? It's okay. Job 10.8 says this, Your hands have made me and fashioned me an intricate unity. An intricate unity. You are an intricate unity. You've been fashioned by the Creator, Father, God as an intricate unity. You are one unit. Look at the person next to you and say, you're a good-looking unit. This is, a beauty of, this is a beauty of being in the body of Christ. We compose of many members, many different personalities, many different types. There's like, we, we think differently. We don't think the same. Stop trying to fall into a group of people because you feel like you have to think the way that they think the way you, is the only way you're going to get accepted. Be yourself. Be who God made you to be. Just relax. Drop the tension. Take the intensity off just a little bit and try to do the woohoo. And if you do the woohoo all the time, try to do the intensity sometimes. Just shift it up. <laughs> Psalms 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. I love this. It's like, you know, he's already, he already understands your thought before you even have it. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, for there is not a word in my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me in behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? This is good news. You can't go anywhere. He goes on to name some of the places, but it's like you can't get away from God. I tried, it don't work. I tried it in high school. He finds you. He searches you. He seeks you out. He doesn't let you go. 
Because he made you. You're attached to him. Do you know that we carry his DNA? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall follow me, even the night shall be a light about me. Did you know darkness is powerless? Darkness is, there's no source of power to darkness. There's a source of power to light, but not to darkness. When you're a believer connected to Jesus Christ, there's no darkness that can hurt you. It, it bothers me when Christians say, I'm so under attack by the devil. He's after me all the time. He's bothering me all the time. It's like, well, bother him back. <laughs> I mean, you, you have Jesus Christ, the great victor inside of you. Tap into that and use it against a defeated enemy. Oh, well, maybe I said that too harshly. Maybe that was some of my personality coming out. But I'm just, I'm just saying, you know what? You're not a victim here. You are a powerful member of the body of Christ. I'm going to finish this today. I'm getting through it. Man, I'm getting through it. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden for you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Wow. You're not some biological accident. You are a chosen person made in the image of God. You have been fashioned by him. He knows you. Oh, yes, Sheldon, he knows you, buddy. He knows you, Sheldon. He knows your thoughts from afar off. It's a good thing. A day's fashion for me. When, as yet, there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. This is so exciting. So many people have the, the wrong idea about God. They think God has thoughts against them. God has thoughts for you. How precious are his thoughts for you. They're so numerous. They're as numerous as the sand on the seashore. His good thoughts that he has towards you. He doesn't think of you as a failure He doesn't think of you as an ostracized orphan. He thinks of you as a son and as a daughter. When I wake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? And I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Now, I don't know about all this hating part and the last part. It's there. It's real. 
and it was limited to the psalmist who was writing this. But I don't believe God's given you permission to hate people. You can argue with me if you want, but I did used to hate people that weren't Christians. I used to distrust people that weren't believers. I used to see them on Sunday running and walking and used to judge them. Why aren't they in church? They must not be believers. It it didn't do good for me. It doesn't do good for anybody. Every human, every person, God has good thoughts towards them. And that's a far better way to live towards people than to think he doesn't. 